Before we get to our guest, I want to talk about our NOAA subscription. CD Media is not just a local news company. We're not just a military company. We're not even just a national company. CDM is a global news organization that has reporters from the Middle East to Eastern Europe to the Balkans to Asia to Latin America to the United States. Put us in your daily scan and get the news, tip of the spear news from around the world. I know that people don't like ads, however. They don't like pop-up ads on their phone. They don't like to see ads on the websites. But you know what? We have to make money. Seriously, we have to support ourselves, and that's one of the ways we do it. However, if you don't like ads, you can sign up for our no-ad subscription. And guess what? You get access to our dozen newspapers around the world, our dozen news organizations, and you get access to all this quality, high-quality content. So, so give us a few bucks, sign up for your no-ad subscription, and you'll get access to all of the sites with a block on the ads, and you'll be very happy. And now let's get to our guest. Hi, everybody. I'm Christine Dolan, and welcome to our In Plain Sight Global Conversations. We are back with Colonel Jim Zitlow and Colonel Tom Remfer, who uh, are were in the same class at the, at the uh, U.S. Air Force Academy back in the 1980s, and we're back this week to continue our conversation that we started last week in our Part 1 series. So, Jim, I want to throw it to you and let the audience know that we may be repeating a little bit of last week's show to put it in context for where we're going for this. Okay, Jim, let's start with you after 9-11. What happened in terms okay. of- Okay, so I'll just keep it real brief. We discussed you know, our 2007 planning for the DOD Global Pandemic Influenza Plan. We talked about uh, the uh, 15 national planning scenarios, one of which was a pandemic after 9-11. Uh, and we did discuss uh, you know, Homeland Security Presidential Directive 21 which came out in uh, the 2007 timeframe. Just a couple additional uh, things that happened prior to that is, uh, you know, we were in the midst of, uh, in 2002 and 2003, the SARS uh, break outbreak, which happened and uh, was initially handled, uh, you know, per public uh, health protocols. Also, uh, we were in the process of uh, getting ready to invade Iraq. So uh, we were concerned about, uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction, which included biological agents uh, from Saddam Hussein. So that was a big push concern about bioterrorism uh, that happened there. So we were ha handling both of those in the 2002, 2003. Going into 2004, there was a, uh, the White House under George W. Bush 43 administration uh, created kind of a, a multi-page white paper, the initial biodefense for the 21st century it's kind of interesting. Some of the uh, topics they developed initially included, uh, you know, a bio watch program for major cities in the United States to uh, track if there were going to be any, uh, you know, infections or uh, viruses spread uh, via, you know, nefarious means or naturally. Uh, there was a, uh, interestingly, a 30-fold increase in funding for the Department of Health and Human Services uh, to uh, take on the additional work at that time. 
the strategic national stockpile was uh, was beginning to be filled up with uh, medicines that, uh, you know, antiviral medicines, uh, early treatment protocol medicines that could be put in push packages, pushed out within 12 hours across anywhere within the United States. Uh, they did uh, also launch Project BioShield, which uh, sped development of new types of medical countermeasures, medicines, and then also looking at uh, back possible vaccines. Jim, let uh, me stop you for one second. Pardon me for interrupting, but I mean, in those packets they had to be pushed out, did they have ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine? I mean, the normal medicines. It would, it would have been normal medicines and, and, you know, and of course, medicines they would have been uh, investigating. I don't know specifically the content of those push packages. That would be a great question for sure. Uh, and so uh, there wasn't, again, after the, uh, the 2004 biodefense for the 21st century, uh, that was naturally focused on, you know, a bioterrorism focus and weapons of mass destruction. There was a transition towards more naturally occurring uh, viruses. And of course, there was bird flu developing in Southeast Asia, 2004, 2005 timeframe. So uh, the uh, White House under Bush 43 came up in 2005 with the national strategy for pandemic influenza. And again, it was about a 17 page document, basically uh, would be the first time in the nation's history we would, we would build a comprehensive plan uh, for the federal government. Uh, in, and there were some additional, uh, a, a large number of uh, items in that plan. And in 2006, uh, the White House came out with a 233 page in, implement, implementation plan for the nation uh, to handle a pandemic influenza. So it was basically implementing that strategy and then directing the departments across the, the government as well as all the way down to the states and localities to come up with a pl planning to handle uh, pandemic uh, influenza. They looked at the H5N1 uh, virus initially. Uh, later on in 2009, 2010, there was actually an H1N1 outbreak. But essentially, just to boil it down in the few minutes we have, is uh, it was a strategy to ensure that uh, you know the Department of Health and Human Services would handle uh, the medical response piece, <coughs> all the non-medical response would be handled uh, by the Department of Homeland Security and through the National Response Plan, which would allow uh, a national uh, command across multiple departments uh, to be put in place through uh, joint field offices, through the regional FEMA structure so that, uh, you know, federal, state, and local resources could all be uh, come to bear, you know, through a multi-stage process. So there was initially, you know, a, an awareness of where the, where the uh, virus might go uh, through the stages of, you know, infection, uh, monitoring, uh, responding, uh, you know, keeping uh, healthy people healthy and those that had to be, uh, you know, quarantined briefly. And then of course, uh, the follow-up to that was response and then community resilience and recovery. So that plan was basically put in place. Uh, if there was anything to happen overseas, the Department of State, uh, with the help of the Department of Defense, would respond to uh, you know help out uh, our international partners. So uh, those plans 
were essentially laid out so that we would be ready for pandemic preparedness, which occurred in the uh, 2009 timeframe. In 2008, uh, there was a supplement built for the National Response Plan, which was a, a biomedical uh, index, which was about eight or nine pages, just laying out what I just discussed, where HHS would be uh, handling the medical piece, and then uh, we would have DHS handling the non-medical, all the logistics, getting all the PPE in place, you know, transporting the medicines, uh, vaccines, if they would eventually be approved and produced over a long period of time. So that's essentially what had happened in those early years uh, from 2001 until the 2009 timeframe. So I don't want to go into any more. I want to give Tom a little bit uh, of time to discuss his portion. Before we do, I'm going to ask you something because you were in the room in 2007. You're leading those interagency conversations to come up with that comprehensive plan in 2007 that was implemented in 2009. Did WHO ever come up and how did you guys, I guess, react to, to WHO being involved in the U.S. global pandemic preparedness plan, if at all? Yes, the, the WHO is part of our planning as far as an, an international agency, it was directed by the George W. Bush 43 implementation plan in 2006, which said we would consider, uh, you know, partnering with uh, the WHO. And again, the WHO and at that time had come up with six phases of a pandemic and they were referenced in our plan. Uh, but it was important for us, you know, from a sovereignty perspective, that uh, we would partner and uh, cooperate with the WHO. It would be advisory in nature, but uh, essentially the actions we'll, we, we could take, and I, couldn't, I cannot go into the classified portion of this, this essentially was uh, our own sovereignty. We would be responsible for our own people and our own res response uh, capabilities. So it doesn't look anything, it didn't look anything then like what's happening right now under the Biden administration that's trying to make amendments uh, viable for the international health regulations of 2005 that would put the health so sovereignty under the WHO next month. Yeah, this, what's happening now is, is uh, opposite of the way we had planned things in 2007. All right. So, Tom, jump in here. So you, you pick up where Jim just left off and, and, and let's take a look at, you know, what you found in terms of your analysis. Sure. <clears throat> the uh, the important uh, preceding uh, issues that were going on uh, were basically the anthrax letter attacks, uh, which made the na nation realize that they needed to um, have a coherent strategy to deal with bioincidents. And so uh, part of that was the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, the PREP Act. And uh, the bottom line is, is the anthrax vaccine history is important uh, anytime you come up with a new strategy, because that 30 plus year history of DOD centric uh, involvements with the anthrax vaccine um, are pivotal as far as lessons learned. If it's okay with you, um, the chart that is behind me, the graphic, um, basically lays out um, that anthrax vaccine history. Uh, it, it's not a coherent one. 
there were a lot of problems and they, they basically tried to, uh, you know, fit the peg in the hole for over 30 years, uh, even though it made no sense at, at multiple junctures. Uh, if it's okay with you, I'll, I'll give you just um, a, a brief um, a synopsis of that timeline. Yeah, I think it's important because some people, if they're just tuning in for the first time, they may not know or they may have forgotten that the anthrax letters that were sent out to Senator Daschle and some other people, even at NBC News, um, was after 9-11. So this is 2001. So go ahead, Tom. Sure. Um, you know, the, the Department of Defense experience with the anthrax vaccine uh, began back in the mid-1950s, and they were actually involved, um, the Department of Defense or Department of Army uh, was involved in an anthrax vaccine clinical trial in Manchester, New Hampshire, um, uh, spanning several years. But in 1957, that was actually the first outbreak uh, of anthrax, the first epidemic uh, in the past uh, 150 years at that point. Um, some scientific papers have actually um, alleged that it uh, resembled, statistically resembled uh, a biological warfare attack based on the number of infections and the, and the number of, of sudden deaths that occurred during that trial. Regardless of that, the Army tried to patent that vaccine. They actually did it using vaccine um, efficacy data from other clinical trials, not including that one that was in Manchester, New Hampshire. They proposed a license uh, because the government essentially, um, based on uh, the Congress's oversight, said, hey, you've got to license this vaccine. It hasn't been properly licensed uh, by the Food and Drug Administration. And that was uh, 1985. So almost uh, literally almost 30 years later, the vaccine had not been properly licensed by the Food and Drug Administration, though there was an interim license by the Public Health Service that had to be uh, re-proposed and approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And that didn't happen until many, many years later. In the interim, the Department of Defense asked uh, to have a new vaccine. They submitted a request for a proposal. The U.S. Army admitted there was uh, a lacking efficacy, particularly for the inhaled form of the, of the disease, inhalation anthrax. And, and then we had the first Gulf War. And during the first Gulf War, they used the vaccine. Uh, the Department of Defense was intimately involved um, as uh, affirmed by the Food and Drug Administration in subsequent years with unapproved, effectively adulterating manufacturing uh, changes to the manufacturing process, which are suspected uh, for as being uh, probably a primary cause of Gulf War illness based on the increased potency, the lot-to-lot -lot variations. The Senate investigated um, these issues. Uh, they determined that the anthrax vaccine use during the first Gulf War was uh, investigational. Shortly thereafter, the Department of Defense actually submitted IND applications, investigational new drug applications to try to get that inhalation anthrax approval included on the license, which still had not been finalized. Um, a couple of years later, in 1997, the Food and Drug Administration actually issued a notice of intent to revoke the license of the anthrax vaccine manufacturer based on quality control deviations and problems with current good manufacturing uh, practices. Amazingly, the next year in 1998, the Department of Defense announced a mass vaccination program with, for the troops with the existing anthrax vaccine, which was not licensed uh, properly by the Food and Drug Administration, either for its application for inhalation anthrax or even finalized in the Federal Register. 
There were more failed inspections. And then in 2000, uh, the United States House of Representatives produced literally the only subsequent report after the Senate uh, earlier 1997 report. Uh, the House report, um, H.R. 106-556, determined that the vaccine was experimental. Uh, they, they, it was investigational. It was not properly licensed, which put the legality of the DOD uh, program uh, into question, um, as affirmed by our elected representatives. Um, about a year later, in 2001, just prior to 9-11, the Department of Defense review of the vaccine uh, program, which I was involved with based on my earlier military um, involvements in reviewing uh, the anthrax vaccine immunization program, the highest levels of the Department of Defense rec recommended to Secretary Rumsfeld that they essentially not use the vaccine and develop a new vaccine, something that they'd been saying all the way back to 1985. Right after uh, those recommendations were made to the Secretary of Defense, uh, unfortunately, 9-11 occurred. And within a week of 9-11, the first round of anthrax letters went in the mail. Uh, highly suspicious. Uh, uh, it was possible that there could have been some government entity that was involved in that. Took the government over 10 years to determine that it, the uh, likely perpetrator of the anthrax letter attacks was one of the Army scientists at Fort Detrick who was involved with the potency testing uh, for the vaccine and that the motive for the letter attacks was to save the failing uh, anthrax vaccine program. Unfortunately, that took 10 years. And those are FBI and Department of Justice findings. That's not my opinion. It was my opinion in 2001, uh, but it took 10 years later for the Food and Drug Administration, I'm sorry, for the uh, 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 Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Department of Justice to actually come to those findings uh, themselves. And what, in, happened to, what happened to that man? Um, the uh, suspected perpetrator uh, committed suicide before he could be uh, indicted. Um, and uh, in those intervening years, they actually, instead of uh, minimizing the use of anthrax vaccine, they actually expedited it and accelerated it. Uh, and so a court process had to get involved and a federal court uh, in DC, Judge Emmett Sullivan actually declared that the program, the mandatory anthrax vaccine program was illegal and that they were treating our troops as guinea pig uh, in violation of the, of the laws and the books by our Congress, the will of the Congress to try to protect our troops from this kind of uh, experimentation. And so uh, that's the history. And I lay it out because it's really important that we digest how problematic these things are. And despite at many junctures, um, government um, entities agreeing that this is problematic, we probably shouldn't use the anthrax vaccine, things like the fear bomb of the post 9-11 anthrax letter attacks, unfortunately accelerated a program that was always found to be, already found to be highly problematic. And so I, I think it's that um, historical lens is important when you start looking at uh, the um, COVID pandemic uh, countermeasure policies. And as a transition, I'll talk just a little bit about my Naval Postgraduate School thesis. Um, essentially what I did in the 2008 to 2010 timeframe in going through a security studies program at Naval Postgraduate School was put together a thesis that uh, went through the Department of Defense history. You can Google my last name, Remfer and Thesis, and you'll find it um, both on military websites as well as the Naval Postgraduate School website. Uh, because after the anthrax letter attacks, the government was buying more anthrax vaccine that they'd already recommended be halted, 
um, I thought it was important that we kind of review the history. So that's what my thesis does. This uh, chart or timeline illustration of cause and events um, is in that thesis. And part of the thesis was also in my conclusions was to uh, come up with some recommendations. My recommendations uh, ended up um, uh, several years later being um, integrally intertwined into the first national biodefense strategy by the previous administration. In what year was that? What year was that? It's 2018. So it was in the middle of the previous administration. And, and basically what they did came right out of my thesis, uh, whether or not my, my thesis was um, uh, simply um, good recommendations or whether or not they actually um, read it and implemented some of those recommendations, um, we don't know because uh, we weren't working um, at that level uh, at that time. Uh, Jim and I were, you know, essentially both, re both retired. But my recommendations were to um, make sure you have a biodefense strategy, make sure that you have somebody in charge of it, uh, literally on the National Security Council or some kind of an equivalent, um, have some kind of a biodefense commission with all the stakeholders um, and uh, make sure that you end up um, having surveillance and transparency so the American people are, are aware of this process. And the, and the whole point of it was is to make sure we're able to identify these kinds of bio-incidents, um, hopefully before they occur, but when they occur, that we have a, a cogent plan to respond to them. The 2018 National Biodefense Strategy had a cogent plan. Uh, they had uh, a biodefense um, steering committee um, uh, matching my recommendation of a biodefense commission. Um, the in interesting thing, when you look at the evolution of the biodefense strategy, which was edited and republished in 2022, uh, literally towards the end of the pandemic is, they actually struck out the governance section. They took out the biodefense steering committee. Um, you know, my, you know, just academic- what is, that, what is, pardon me, Tom, what does that mean? You tell the audience the significance of that. Well, the original plan, they were supposed to have all the stakeholders at the table. Everybody was supposed to be involved. Um, uh, I think if you analyzed the actual pandemic response, it ended up being fairly stovepiped and siloed from the top down, which is something our government always tries to get away from. Uh, and instead, we really should have steering committees and biodefense commissions and, and a lot of the various stakeholders involved. So when they edited the biodefense strategy, they actually cut that governance section out and they made the new strategy essentially emulate or mirror, memorialize what they had actually done by not having a biodefense steering committee involved. For all practical purposes, there's no appearance of that activity going on um, in the um, current administration's response to the pandemic. So I think that's problematic. I think that there should be governance involved um, uh, in pandemic response. And I think in looking back and analyzing the potential problems, the failures of the COVID-19 um, pandemic response, I think the idea that that governance should be re-included into the biodefense strategy is um, important. So, um, you know, beyond, uh, beyond just those strategies, um, you know, just from a historical lens, I, I'm going to take Jim and I back to when we were in school. You know, we actually read this book called War Morality in the Military Profession by Brigadier General uh, Malam Waken. He was one of the editors. And in that, one of our academic texts, um, there was actually a section about chemical and biological warfare taboo. They called it the CB taboo. 
So for many, many years, um, the United States government, the international community recognized that these kinds of uh, bioincident uh, problems, uh, you know, potentially bioterrorism or biowarfare should be specifically, um, you know, prohibited by international treaty. That occurred as early as 1899 um, with the uh, Hague Convention in, in 1925. They had the Geneva uh, Protocol. In 1975, they had the Biological Weapons and Toxins um, uh, uh, Weapons Convention. And that was actually an offshoot of President Nixon's activity in that in the early 70s timeframe. He'd actually brought in a new Secretary of Defense, uh, Secretary Laird, and he had actually recommended the Department of Defense get out of the biological warfare business. Well, uh, he did. That was, I mean, we have to give credit to Nixon. He failed on, on some on some levels, but he actually said this is so dangerous because we because if you have people working on this and legitimizing it among the, the powers, the big powers on the, on earth that you yes. know, it will get in the hands of somebody who is a rogue agent. Yes. And, and so, Christine, you're exactly right. Nick, uh, President Nixon actually came up with uh, National Security Presidential Directive 35 and 44, which ultimately morphed into uh, the Biological Weapons Convention and uh, the international community's agreement to um, to stay away from biological weapons, specifically in the offensive realm. There was always these caveats of uh, maintaining the ability to do defensive research. I will contend that the defensive research has gotten us in trouble on multiple occasions. Uh, in no uncertain terms, the anthrax letter attacks were um, a bioincident um, stemming from previous uh, defensive research, which became offensive, uh, unfortunately, by a uh, what appears to have been a, a lone wolf um, inside actor trying to save his uh, pet program, the anthrax vaccine. Those are the FBI's um, uh, findings, not mine. And 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 clearly, the current COVID pandemic, uh, many of the um, interested parties, uh, whether it's the um, uh, the director of national intelligence recently uh, testifying to the Senate, the Department of Energy, the FBI, the Senate Select Committee on COVID Origins itself. Um, they're all agreeing that the preponderance of the evidence is showing that the most likely cause was um, a, a lab leak coming from research that was going on in Wuhan. There was a bio incident. And so this is what ties back to the national defense strategies. The national defense strategies are highlighting and asking us to anticipate, surveil, and react to bioincidents. But our government, uh, and, and I think this might be one of the most important takeaways that Jim and I have to offer you, is our government marginalized, minimized, tried to effectively cover up the reality that there was a bioincident that had occurred in Wuhan. And as a result, were, was there an opportunity for the national biodefense strategy to ever really kick into, into gear when it was being uh, framed as some kind of an animal exposure? And then in reality, three years later, everybody realizes it wasn't. You could put together another timeline illustration of causes of events of all the problems with COVID uh, um, pandemic response and COVID vaccines, no different than I did for the anthrax vaccine uh, debacle that that transpired over the course of the past literally 50 years. Um, so that's why I think the history is important. Um, President Nixon, you know, had some kind of insight. Something was going on. He really thought we needed to get out of this business. And unfortunately, we didn't get out of the business altogether. They still maintained the defensive research 
and uh, as a result, defensive research appears to have also led to our most recent pandemic type um, events, which have killed, you know, literally millions and millions uh, across the globe. Um, and also a, a rush to produce vaccines. And there's a whole problematic um, uh, licensure, emergency use authorization, uh, ruse uh, that, that tried to make it look like they had approved vaccine when that approved vaccine actually never made it to the um, marketplace. Uh, and, and so that gets into just the patent illegality of not only the Department of Defense's anthrax vaccine mandate, but also the mandates on all citizens. And so um, and I can go into the, the uh, one, two, three of the illegality if you want, but I want to pass it back over to Jim so he can comment. Before, before we do that, I, I want to ask both of you because, you know, it, it's, you're, you're both are too polite <clears throat> because basically we're talking about, about, a, about a bunch of Frankenstein scientists and bioweapons. There's nothing good about bioweapons. You can play it offense and defense, and that's bureaucratic uh, gobbledygook as far as I'm concerned because this is dangerous stuff. But the fact is that the United States has been involved with it, but we call it something like the PREDICT project that was set up at, through USAID at State Department during the Obama uh, administration in 2009. It went up to for 10 years and then Trump shut it down and then it or let it run out, I should say. But then he stopped some of their gain of function in the spring of 2020. And now we're back with an, another program similar to the same, similar to the PREDICT project. And now we have people growing in the business of bioweaponry, allegedly in the name of science, going out there hunting for all the coronaviruses in the wild to create a vaccination program worldwide. I mean, this is a business model. So we've taken, taken anything from biodefense or global pandemic preparedness plans and turn it into this monstrosity that no has, as you say, Tom, has no governance. And that's the part that people should be scared about. These coronavirus hunters who are basically the economic model for the pharmaceutical companies to create these mRNA and DNA vaccinations, which, you know, for people who, who are unfamiliar with this on this show, you can go back to July of 2022 when I interviewed Dr. Dennis Carroll, who, who oversaw the PREDICT project at um, USAID. But Jim, go ahead, a add to what Tom just said. Well, yeah, I have a couple things to add to what Tom said, and I'll try to get to the PREDICT project. So first of all, uh, when he talks about a government steering committee, that means you have you know, the, the various departments all in the same room, uh, coordinating and working across departments so that you, you can respond uh, in, a, in a national uh, response. And, that, and, and under uh, DHS, there is a federal response plan, a national response plan that allows those multiple departments and different capabilities of the government, both at the federal, state, and local level to coordinate a, a response and to make sure that uh, you're not duplicating effort or missing things. And that's what was missing, I think, in the governance that uh, Tom has addressed. So that's just one clarification in addition I wanted to add. Secondly, uh, to go back to 2006 and the pandemic implementation plan, the initial development was to have both antivirals, early treatment protocols, and you know, have some, some vaccine on, on standby before a pandemic came in. The interesting numbers were 
the White the Bush 43 White House had anticipated developing 75 million doses of antivirals, something like Tamiflu to have on the shelf ready to go. Uh, that was to correspond to only 20 million uh, vaccines for a potential H5N1, uh, which really didn't get to, I don't believe they got to the full 20 million. So the emphasis on the initial response was 75 million early treatment protocol doses to 20 million vaccines, and they anticipated only 25% of the U.S. population was going to get sick at that point. Contrast that to what happened in COVID, uh, where uh, we went with mandatory masks, and then all the early treatment protocols were dismissed or not effective or not approved, uh, and then it was strictly a vaccination only developed almost 12 to 18 months later. So that was definitely a, a, a big difference between how we were preparing early on for the H5 or H1N1 pandemic in 2009. And then later when we got to COVID, uh, everything was just a one size fits all vaccination because all early treatment protocols were not approved. Uh, so that's, that's my answer to that uh, initial information. The next thing I wanna talk about is the PREDICT uh, where this uh, organization is out there hunting potential different you know, viruses that are out there and then trying to uh, project ahead in the future for what types of vaccines or vaccinations or treatments could be out there. That's, uh, uh, to me, that's just, uh, again, I'm not a medical person, I'm just a military planner, but that just seems problematic because uh, nature itself will direct, you know, what's gonna happen with, you know, potential viruses and mutations and uh, I know there's talk about animals versus humans, but again, this is not my area of expertise, but uh, you, you normally you uh, anticipate, uh, you know, when you, you build, a, say, a flu shot early on, there's an anticipation of what strain may be out there in the future. But even then, some, a lot of the time, it's not necessarily correct when that, uh, when that strain actually comes to be in you know six to nine months later. So that's just a problematic for me. It's just a concern I have. So that's my answer to the PREDICT project. And, and I, th I think also the amount of money that they spent supporting it and, and they they did it in part, the PREDICT project did it in partnership with, you know, anywhere from the, it wasn't just the United States, it was also the Chinese, the Norwegians, the British governments that poured money into it. There were private public partnerships that, you know, developed from it. Uh, and if they're so good at what they do, why didn't they see this coming? Now they may turn around and say, well, we did predict that there would be a, you know, a global pandemic. But if, you're, if your prediction is based upon your Petri dish Frankenstein science in a lab that should be, ha have a higher security uh, that that's easy to predict. You don't even have to be in the business because that's just sloppy science, and and, and you don't have enough security around, which, which you're fooling around with. But I, I think that you know people need to under appreciate the level of history here because it, it really it's science, it's bioweapons, DODs involved with it. Uh, it can be used by another state actor or non-state actor to inflict harm on the planet. 
Where do you guys think we should go from here? Tom, any thoughts? You know, back to your predict um, uh, project analysis and, and interview, um, I, I reviewed it. I, I noted that uh, the doctor uh, commented on um, their identification of potentially 1.6 million different uh, viruses and that they'd only identified about 1,200. That's less, less than 0.1% of the actual viruses. And as we all know, just from, from, a, from a historical context, they didn't predict anything. So I would say that was all $2.5 million completely wasted. And uh, there's a lot of that waste that was going on with these types of, of grants. And ultimately, they all become uh, very vaccine-centric. Um, James, in my experience in dealing with, uh, with, with cogent policy, is that you're supposed to have a broad range of, of responses. And the COVID pandemic, no different than the anthrax vaccine uh, dilemma, is an example where, for some reason, one tribe wins out and it becomes one size fit all vaccine centric um, uh, solutions end up being what they do, even though they know that when it comes to biological weapons, you know, we, we should be focusing on antibiotics, outer garments. I mean, ultimately, the anthrax vaccine ended up being completely unnecessary as long as there was early application of simple antibiotics. Uh, that was completely contrary to the Department of Defense's sound bites uh, when they were pushing the anthrax vaccine. And But that is the reality. That's essentially the, the lesson learned from uh, the anthrax letter attacks. Um, and it's actually the, the uh, lesson learned from prompt application uh, during the 1957 uh, clinical trial in Manchester, New Hampshire as well. They've known for a long time what saves people from inhalation anthrax, and it, and it was an anthrax vaccine. So, um, you know, I think that that's an important thing that, that you got to look at. And you know, then when analyzing the um, one-size-fits-all solution of the of the COVID vaccines, they initially come up with the monovalent vaccines targeted around the original Wuhan strains. Uh, just within the last couple of weeks, they actually deauthorized the emergency use authorization for those monovalent uh, Pfizer-BioNTech and, and Moderna vaccines. They are deauthorized. They're not even allowed anymore. Um, uh, they, they did have the ruse, the gargantuan fraud that they were approved at some point, but approved regulatorily, you know, um, oversight on an approved product never made it to the U.S. marketplace. Uh, and so uh, the bottom line is, is the vaccine mandates for our troops, the vaccine mandates for our citizens were patently illegal um, based on the laws, both for our soldiers under Title 10 and our civilians under Title 21. Um, I have a, a website that I've managed for many, many years in trying to get records corrected for our troops related to the injustices over the anthrax vaccine mandate. That's at hopingforjustice.org, using the number four. So hoping number four uh, uh, justice.org. And I kind of lay out um, in, a, in a COVID tab uh, the parallels between what we experienced with the anthrax vaccine policy. But the bottom line is today, the only thing that's authorized, they're not approved is the bivalent vaccines. The bivalent vaccines have authorization. They do not have approval. So all mandates for all practical purposes from this point forward are absolutely illegal. And, and this is actually verified by dialogue uh, within the Food and Drug Administration and CBER, the Center for Biologics Evaluation and, and Research, where Dr. Marian Gruber, just prior to the vaccine mandate uh, announcements, actually resigned, actually said, no, right. this is wrong. We don't have the approved product. You can't do this. And right. So, that, was, that was October 2021. And she yeah, and so, Phil Krauss. 
Yeah. And so I'm, I'm proud of those intellectually honest government officials that say, hey, you're moving too fast. Uh, there should be a plan. Uh, unfortunately, you're not sticking to the plan. There are laws. You are absolutely not sticking uh, with the laws. And so today, all we have is is EUA authorized bivalent vaccines, um, the mechanism under the PrEP Act to allow investigational unapproved medical products to be used. The bivalent uh, products are the only ones. They are not approved. Therefore, no mandates anywhere in the United States are legal. So, so Jim, jump in on this because we're running out of time. But I also want you to address the fact that President Biden, uh, I think it was April 10th, it was the Monday after Easter, was forced to sign a bill on Capitol Hill, you know, ending the emergency, but it's but it still hasn't ended, although there are some people out there saying, well, no, it's over, everything's illegal. That's not exactly where we, st I mean, it never was, Tom, from what you're saying, because nobody filed the plan since day one. So everything was, is everything illegal, guys? It was, and it is to be mandated. It's fine to offer the product with informed consent or prior consent for the troops. It's absolutely fine to offer the products and explain to people what the limitations are uh, and even what the consequences are of possibly uh, not participating. And those consequences are strictly uh, medical in nature. That is confirmed by the Code of Federal Regulations uh, 50.24 and 50.25. That section of the Code of Federal Regulations is about human protection. Unfortunately, our Department of Justice gave bad advice to the administration saying the consequences could somehow equate to secondary consequences and job loss. But if you look at the context of consequences, it comes from that code of federal regulations that clearly shows consequences are only medical in nature for somehow maybe withdrawing from a clinical trial. So unfortunately, the government got it wrong. The mandates were illegal from the very beginning, uh, based on the fact that EUA product was the only thing that they had had to offer. You know, this is this is scary. We, we, we have Frankenstein science, and then we also have incompetent Department of Justice lawyers that are setting policy and making making you know advisements up the up the ladder. Jim, you, why don't you close this up? You've got the last. So just a couple quick uh, important points I want to make sure we get in in the discussion. So the uh, the national emergency is supposed to end May uh, May tenth May May tenth May eleventh, and that just generally was uh, authorization for funding for uh, certain programs so the nation could respond. It it really doesn't have anything to do with uh, the vaccine mandate, which uh, Tom uh, just previously addressed. Also, I want to make sure that everyone understands that, you know, when you when you're trying to prevent, uh, you know, people from getting sick, it's about preventing transmission. That was something that was hardly ever discussed until just the last few months, uh, because when the vaccines were uh, rolled out, it appears through a number of scientific studies that those who were vaccinated were actually transmitting the virus uh, in, in several of the waves. Uh, much more uh, aggressively than those that were probably unvaxxed with natural immunity. So uh, when we were doing our planning, it was all about preventing transmission of the disease. Uh, you know, and, and even in our plan, we used one yard, which, uh, you know, again, was three feet. So now, you know, in the last three years, it's been six feet. So it's interesting how they came up with that. But the bottom line is to prevent transmission is just is just not to expose yourself to someone who's sick. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, so, you know, you can talk about, uh, you know, 
six feet and vaccines, but it really it's, it's a really all of the above effort where you, you can develop vaccines long term, get a full FDA approval after you do full testing, which takes months to years to do. But in the meantime, you have antivirals, early treatment protocols and uh, PPE and other things so that you can respond to someone who's ill and uh, get them well again or prevent the transmission, which is what preventing pandemics and uh, infection is all about. You guys are a wealth of information and I can't express um, City Media's appreciation for, you know, contributing to our conversation because I think this is, it's really important that people understand how this all came about so that ne it never happens again and what needs to be changed, exposed, you know, people held accountable, they have to understand the history. So I just want to say thank you, both of you, you know, for uh, doing this show and you're always welcome back. And um, I hope people have learned as much as I have today, because I think that you guys are experts and you should be, somebody should be subpoenaing you to be expert witnesses before, you know, you be testifying before, before Congress. And, and I, I hope they do soon, because I, I believe that a lot of the people have, up on the hill and possibly people of DOD and FDA have no idea what has the history as you have laid it out. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Christine. Thanks for shining the light, uh, Christine, for both you and Todd as a, as a fellow graduate. Thank oh you. yes, we have to say that, that you guys came to my table because he was a class ahead of you that beat you guys up in, in your class, not literally, just as, as upperclassmen. I, I have I do have to throw that in there. Thank you very and, much, guys. And Christine, we'll, we'll add that disclaimer for both of us that our, our views represent our own views and not the Department of Defense, the U.S. Air Force, its components at this time. Great. Exactly. Great. Thank you, guys.